0: You know, we've made no uh, secret of the fact that for us 2016 was a really difficult year. Um, and you know, the funny thing was, though, as I was going back through my notes in preparation for this morning, I went all the way back to January 2nd, 2011. And you know what it said in the notes there, the first thing? 2010 has been a very difficult year. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like, yeah, goodbye 2010. Don't let the door hit you or the good Lord split you. You know, something like that. It's just like, good riddance. But isn't that a good lesson? I cannot even remember what made 2010 so difficult. So maybe that's a lesson for 2016. You know? We experienced it as a difficult year. But as we move through, kind of like Eliza, to be healed to move through is the passage that we're looking for and in a few years we won't remember what made 2016 so difficult except for one thing for me personally and I know for several of you that on January 6th of 2016 our dear friend Lenny took his own life and that kind of started off 2016 for us but I, of course I will never forget and we just passed the first anniversary on Friday of Lenny's death we passed his birthday on the 26th of December so as you can imagine Lenny's been on my mind a lot you know he's been on Sharon's mind who is his girlfriend and and Kathy is here his sister you know we've all been communicating and texting and and kind of staying close through this couple of weeks because everything does come back up again you know i personally am never going to forget it was a wednesday night it was raining and uh, everything that happened that night, you know, I was the one who told Sharon what happened, and we drove over to his place, and like I said, in the pouring rain, everything is kind of etched in memory. And uh, it's not going to go away, but it is softened by time. And as we get further out, we're starting to see things that have taken place, I suppose, in a sense, because of Lenny's death, But more importantly, because of who he was, that now we're starting to see in a different light. And I think it all kind of encapsulated for me yesterday morning when I got a text from Kathy, Lenny's sister. And I actually had a completely different direction I was going to go this morning. But she sent me this text. She said, I was pondering. In a year, I lost a brother who I loved. But I gained a friend who I adore. Go figure god 's odd way of strange beauty question mark, and that phrase, "Strange beauty," just stuck for me. you know it's kind of a paradox it's kind of an oxymoron, strange beauty, but it captured everything for me. you know this, this wonderful expression of how Kathy has been able to start to see grace in the midst of tragedy, starting to see renewed life in the midst of despair, starting to see renewal and starting to see grace in the midst of everything that went on. One of the most difficult things that her and her family have faced. And yet, now she's starting to see things happen. We loved Lenny so much that Lenny brought people together. He was kind of a a pivotal point, kind of a, a connection point for so many of us. I never met Kathy or her family until after Lenny's death. But now we're together and now she's here and now she's a part of the family and connected to us in ways that we couldn't have imagined before. It's kind of, you know, like you say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's kind of like the connection that we had with Lenny between us has now been transferred to us and new connections have been made, new friendships have been made and our willingness to lean into the pain, to see each other in the midst of the tragedy has created a new family, has created a new network. That's the grace. That's the strange beauty. The beauty where you would never have thought to look. The beauty that comes out of something that is so dark. And so, this is kind of what I've been seeing in this last year. And kind of coming around to a head. You know, Our love for Lenny, Lenny's love for us, has forged something brand new. And of course, especially at the time and probably right now, there's controversy because the church has not always accepted that suicides are accepted by God. And so the question always comes to me when anyone takes their life, is that person in heaven? Is that person going to be okay? Is God going to accept that person? And we needed to go through that all of that theological and all of that emotion at the time. And it keeps coming up. And of course, my position is, of course, God accepts them. God understands. People who take their lives, take their lives because they want the hurting to stop, not because they don't want to keep on living. They just can't find the connection point. They can't find. And with Lenny, I watched him over years. I probably knew him seven or eight years. I watched him searching for God's love and growing And it was just like you know, at a certain point, he just ran out of runway, is the way I put it a year ago, and it's the way I still feel about it. Maybe if he had more time, he could have turned a corner. He could have gotten some place where he understood just how he was loved, and he could start to see himself the way God saw him, the way we saw him. Lenny was so full of love. He loved us. He loved those dogs. Any of you who know Lenny, he loved those dogs. They went everywhere with him. And he also loved God, you know. He just couldn't get on the other side of his personal pain. But Lenny chasing his connection with God, it's kind of like if you want to be with God, you are, and there's no question about it. God is always open. It's we who make the choice to take advantage of that openness, that forgiveness, that redemption, that grace, you know. That's what Lenny was all about. And so, I suppose the question becomes then, can God always make beautiful music out of whatever noise or clatter we make? (laughs) You know? Can he turn it around? These things that we create in our lives, these mistakes that we make, these sins, I suppose, that we commit, can he turn that around? Can he make that good again? But see, I think the better question is, can we Turn that around? Can we make that good again? Because the truth of the matter is, God's already made his decision. God's already chosen us. He's already said yes to us in every way that he possibly can. Are we going to say yes back to him? Are we going to press through, lean in, keep breathing through the difficult times in our lives so that we can get to the point where we see the reason in all of the apparent madness? We see the strange beauty where it looked like only tragedy exists. Can you do that? Can I do that? Or is there something else going on here? You know, it's so easy for us to imagine ourselves as fundamentally flawed. I think that's how Lenny saw himself, is something was fundamentally wrong with him. And it's so easy for all of us to do that. You know, Lenny never got to the point that he could see his own beauty, his own strange beauty. You know, can we do that? Can we start to see who we really are? Are we always going to see ourselves as this fundamentally flawed person? I hope we can start to see ourselves as strangely beautiful, even if the emphasis is on the strange. It's okay. you know, but there's something here. Um, I wanted to read a little bit from uh, Brendan Manning's book because he talks about this exact phenomenon, this missing the point of the good news that we all do by seeing ourselves as fundamentally flawed, something fundamentally intrinsically wrong with us. And he tells this story about the cracked pot. A water bearer in India had two large pots, each hung on opposite ends of a pole that he carried across his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it, while the other was perfect. The latter always delivered a full portion of water at the end of the long walk from the stream to the master's house. The cracked pot arrived only half full. Every day, for two full years, the water bearer delivered only one and a half pots of water. The perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments, because it fulfilled magnificently the purpose for which it had been made. But the poor cracked pot was ashamed of its imperfection, miserable that it was able to accomplish only half of what it had been made to do. After the second year of what perceived to be a bitter failure, the unhappy pot spoke to the water bearer one day by the stream. I'm ashamed of myself, and I want to apologize to you, the pot said. Why? asked the bearer. What are you ashamed of? I have been able for these past two years to deliver deliver only half of my load, Because this crack in my side causes water to leak out all the way back to your master's house. Because of my flaws, you have to do all this work and you don't ever get full value from your efforts, the pot said. The water bearer felt sorry for the old cracked pot and in his compassion he said, As we return to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. Indeed, as they went up the hill, the cracked pot took notice of the beautiful wildflowers on the side of the path, bright in the sun's glow, and the sight cheered him up a bit. But at the end of the trail, it still felt bad that it had leaked out half its load, and so again it apologized to the bearer for its failure. The bearer said to the pot, did you notice that there were flowers only on your side of the path and not on the other pot's side? That is because I have always known about your flaw." And I have taken advantage of it. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path. And every day as we have walked back from the stream, you have watered them. For two years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate my master's table. Without you being just the way you are, he would not have had this beauty to grace his house. Okay, nice story. What's the usual interpretation of a story like that do you think we all have this flaw but if we try really hard if we're really good if we allow then god can even make use of our tragic flaws pressure so we've taken a situation and we've just made it worse We've taken a situation and we've moralized it. We've taken a situation and we've turned it into a legal standard. We are less than. We are not created the way we were supposed to be created. There's something intrinsically wrong with us. But, you know, if we really work, if we really try, if we really allow, then God can still make some good music out of a clatter and a noise that we were creating on our own. You know, this is the problem. This is this view that we are somehow intrinsically, innately, fundamentally flawed, flies right in the face of the good news that Jesus is trying to get across to us. What really is the good news of Jesus? Endless diversity over absolute love. I want you to think about that for a second. What Jesus is saying with this good news is endless diversity. So many unique people everyone with their own individual cracks, everyone with their own individual traits, and yet all loved exactly the same, exactly equally. And so if we're all loved the same, right, how can we say that one is better than the other? How can we say one pot is better than the other? One person is better than the other. One mission, one ministry, maybe, is better than the other. We're all perfect In God's eyes, exactly the way we are, or there is no good news. Can we get that? Can we understand? The good news is we are already perfectly and equally accepted and loved exactly the way we are. It's only we who pile on the comparisons, it's we who pile on the judgments, the distinctions. It's we who torture ourselves with all this kind of thinking because we can't see our own strange beauty that God sees, often that everybody else sees, but we can't see it, and we stay in this place. To continue a bit with Brennan Manning, he says, The cracked pot was sad because it compared itself to the perfect pot. Without the comparison, it would have been happy, content in the knowledge that it was exactly the way it was supposed to be. An obese woman is Mary until she compares herself to Naomi Campbell. A fledging writer is at peace until he compares himself to William Faulkner. An adequate quarterback is satisfied until he compares himself to Joe Montana. I'm okay until I compare myself with Mother Teresa. Israel Schwartz was sad because he wasn't like Moses. One night an angel appeared to him and said, On Judgment Day, Yahweh will not ask you why you are not Moses he will ask you why you are not his beloved Izzy. From infancy, we are taught to compare ourselves to others in terms of intelligence, talent, charisma, physical appearance. Infants appear in television commercials. Beauty pageants are held for six-year-olds. IQ tests are administered in third grade. And Little League mania rules many a home. SAT scores, class rankings, and success in the stock market along with competitions and rivalries in every arena of life compel us to measure our worth, for better or worse, on a scale that does not exist in the mind of God. The slightest crack is unacceptable, inducing a deadening sense of inferiority. There was nothing wrong with Lenny except in his own eyes. We knew that. Lenny didn't. Every single one of us is perfect in God's eyes. We know that. We say we know that. Except when we turn the spotlight back on ourselves. Then somehow we lose that. Every pot, every person, is cracked in its own unique and strangely beautiful way. See how that works? A perfect pot's boring. Ever thought about that? It's just boring. There's nothing to it. Symmetrical is all. It's the cracks that are endlessly fascinating. Each one different. Each one telling some kind of story. Our cracks are not our flaws. They're just another way of being that is different than the person sitting right next to you right now. If we can start to get that, if we can start to see ourselves as endlessly different But equally purposeful, equally beautiful, equally meaningful, then we're going to start to get where Jesus is trying to move us in the direction of his good news. Jesus is interesting because he never tells things directly. We've talked about this before. He's the consummate Eastern teacher trying to get us to take these quantum leaps into new ways of thinking. So when direct questions are answered, he never answers them directly. Tells a story, asks another question. And these things that we want so badly to know and have clarity on, Jesus leads us there by the circuitous route. He takes us on a journey, but he never really just tells us because these things can't be told. They have to be experienced. But in this very short story about Martha and Mary, He's trying to get a point across, and again, we miss the point. Take a look at Luke 10, verse 38. It's going to be up on the screens, I imagine, and it's in your inserts there. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all their preparation, and she came up to him and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So here we have a story. What's the usual interpretation of this story? Martha got slapped down. Mary's doing better. Mary over Martha, right? Prayerfulness over busyness. Contemplative life, perhaps, over the active life. Here's the value judgments we make. And since this story immediately follows the Good Samaritan story, it kind of bolsters that interpretation. What have we done? Pressure. We've done it again to ourselves. We've taken a beautiful story here that's trying to get something really fundamentally deep across and we've moralized it. We've legalized it. We've put standards of judgment on the place. Jesus isn't trying to tell us that Mary is better than Martha. He's not trying to tell us that at all. And if you really de- dig deep a little bit into the between the lines part of the story, you know, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were his probably his best friends, outside of the three and the twelve that traveled with him. We see him going back there multiple times. It was a home away from home. It was a point where he could stop through all of these travels and the exhaustion that he faced in his ministry, and he could land there among safe friends. Eventually, Lazarus is the one that he raises from the dead. But on this particular stop, he's just stopping. It wasn't the first time. I know it reads like it is, but this was an ongoing thing. He had an ongoing relationship with these people. He knew them really well. And understanding Eastern hospitality traditions and and, uh, obligations, you wouldn't ever have someone come into your house without just, you know, killing the fatted calf and putting on all of the dog and pony show and all of the food. And so we have two different ways of being. We have Mary and we have Martha. Mary's crack, quote-unquote, Mary's individual way of being, maybe was a bit of a dreamer. Maybe she was the one who was always looking at clouds and always kind of maybe a bit irresponsible, you know, not traditional, maybe a little bit lazy. I don't know. We're just kind of speculating here. But she was a very different personality, it appears, than Martha. Martha's crack, Martha's way of being, you know, maybe a little bit OCD but also very traditional. She took seriously these hospitality responsibilities that she had in her house. She was structured, you know. She was disciplined. She saw things, you know, in a very organized way. Two different ways of being. One is not better than the other. But what Mary did was plug into the moment that presented herself right then and there. If Mary had plugged into the kitchen in the same way, there would have been no story here to tell. Mary's problem was that she was resentful. Mary's problem was that she was thinking about her sister when she was doing the work in the kitchen. She was not where her feet were. She wasn't plugged in and present. She wasn't joyful at her ability to create a meal that was going to feed her master and feed everyone else in the house. She was over here someplace and Mary was right here. It's a momentary thing. This is not a value judgment on two different ways of living life. This is not a value judgment on two different people. This is just in this moment, Mary plugged in and Martha couldn't quite do it. And Jesus is trying to bring her back. But if we, again, continue to see Scripture as reinforcing this narrative, this meme, if you will, that we are fundamentally flawed, that there's something wrong with us? And how in the world are we ever going to be able to move into this good news, this place that Jesus has for us? All of this moralizing tends us to just completely miss and turn Jesus' message completely around. You know, We're loved in a way that is so hard for us to understand. So the question then should be, well, how are we loved? How does Jesus love us? How does the Father love us? And again, typically Jesus isn't going to give us a straight answer. But I want you to take a look at three passages that give us a real insight here, a clue. First at John 13, verse 34. This is the Last Supper. Jesus is just getting ready to leave the Supper to start his journey into his passion on Thursday night. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What kind of love defines his disciples? What kind of love defines his followers? First of all, it's love and not a belief system. Not signing pledge allegiance to the theology. It's this love. Love each other as I have loved you. So, we are to love as Jesus loves us. How does Jesus love us? To look at Mark 12:31, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus loves us as he loves himself. How's that? John 10:30, I and the Father are one. We're to love G- everyone as Jesus loves us. How does Jesus love us? As he loves himself. How does he love himself? as one with the Father, as one with everything that is, as one with ultimate reality, as one with the creator of everything that we see around us. And so what he's trying to tell us is that we are loved as if we are one with the Father, one with everything that is. Because we are. We just don't see it. That's our strange beauty. The beauty in us that comes from a direction that we don't expect. That we are one with this Father. We are one with Jesus. We are loved as if that's true, but we don't live as if that's true. And that's our problem. That's where we're trying to go. If we could only see what is really going on here. What Lenny is reminding me at the turn of this year, at the anniversary of his death, every time that I get down on myself, every time when I start playing the comparison game, in whatever way that it happens to be, when I start to feel hopelessly cracked, I remember that Lenny's cracks are what made me love him the most. He had a wicked wit, any of you who know Lenny. He had a sharp sense of humor. He was wildly inappropriate at the most delicious times. And it got him into so much trouble. I think he lost a few jobs over that. But he, he just never knew what was going to come out of the man. You know? It, it, was, it was so great. Every time he opened his mouth, you're kind of waiting, you know, for what was going to come. And more, more often than not, he just had us rolling in, in, our, in our seats on the ground, you know? He loved those dogs in a way that was weird <laughs> he loved them more than people, he loved them like people. We had so many uh, you know debates about whether you know dogs could really love and, and, and you know, my dogs do you know he took them everywhere he possibly could and they 'd run free and we 'd have a great old time with them. He had this curiosity, he had this insatiable desire to know what was really going on. you know these were his individual way of being this was his fascinating crack system in the side of his pot. There was nothing wrong with him. There's nothing wrong with that. And Lenny, because I remember him and I remember my relationship with him and I remember what made me laugh and made me love him so much, he's turning it back on me and saying, can I give myself the same break? Can I give myself the same grace? Can I stop for a second with all the comparisons and all of the put-downs And all of the stuff that makes me feel less than and steals away the good news that Jesus is constantly trying to bring back to me. Whatever this strange beauty is that I miss in myself, Lenny is still with me. Lenny is still reminding me that it's all strangely beautiful. We need to be reminded often. And that's what our old friends do. The ones that we know the best, the ones that know us the best and yet they love us anyway because they don't care about the cracks anymore. They either don't see them anymore or they celebrate them. It's the old friends. It's the old acquaintances that really do that for us. And I guess at this time of year, there is that song that we all sing and hardly any of us know what it means, right? Should all the acquaintance be forgot? What the heck does that mean? You know? I remember Billy Crystal asking that when Harry Met Sally, all my life, I don't know what this song means. Why do we sing this song? Well, I have for you. A little article that I want to read to close with, because I think this might bring the whole thing full circle for us. Peggy Noonan wrote this. Days of Old Langwood? You know exactly when you'll hear it, and you'll probably not hear it again for a year. The big clock will hit 11:59:50. 50. The countdown will begin. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, and the sounds will rise: the party horns, the fireworks, and shouts of Happy New Year. And then they'll play that song. Should all the acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should all the acquaintance be forgot and days of auld lang syne? It's a poem in the Scots dialect set to a Scots folk tune. And an unscientific survey says that a lot of us don't think much about the words or even know them. Auld lang syne. The phrase can be translated as old long since or long long ago. But I like old times past. And for me, if you really translate that, it's everything we've been through together. Auld lang syne. Everything we've been through together. Long times past. Long times since. The whole bundle of of everything that our acquaintance, everything that our friendship has brought to us. It's a song that asks a question, a tender little question that has to do with the nature of being alive, of being a person on a journey in the world. It It not only asks, it also gives an answer. It was written or written down by Robert Burns, lyric poet and bard of Scotland. In 1788, he sent a copy of the poem to the Scots Musical Museum with the words, the following song, an old song of the olden times, has never been in print. Burns was interested in the culture of Scotland and collected old folk tales and poems. He said he got this one from an old man, no one knows who, and he wrote it down. And being a writer, he revised and compressed... He found the phrase Auld Lang Syne exceedingly expressive and thought whoever first wrote the poem was heaven-inspired. The song spread throughout Scotland where it was sung to mark the end of the old year and then to the English-speaking world where it's sung to mark the new. The question it asks is clear. Should those we knew and loved be forgotten and never thought of? Should old times past be forgotten? No, says the song, they shouldn't be. We'll remember those times and those people. We'll toast them now and always. We'll keep them close. We'll take a cup of kindness yet. The phrase, old acquaintance, is important, says a friend of mine. It's not only your close friends and people you love, it's people you knew even casually. And you think of them and it brings tears to your eyes. For him, acquaintance includes your heroes, my heroes, the Winston Churchills of life, the ones you admire, they're old acquaintances, too. But the interesting, more serious message in the song is that the past is important. We mustn't forget it. The old has something for us. So does the present, as the last stanza makes clear. The song is not only about those who were in your life, but those who are in your life. And there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give a hand of thine. We'll take a right good willed draft for old Lang Syne. The song is about friendship. I think it's a description of the things we lose in our hurry to do things. We forget to be a friend. We have to take the time to make friends and be friends, to sit and tell stories and listen to those of others. Another friend thinks of childhood when she thinks of Auld Lang Syne. I see New Year's Eve parties going way back, all the way back to when we were little kids and you had to kiss someone at midnight and you had to sing that song. Maybe in the age of Facebook, you don't lose old friends, she says. Maybe it's obsolete. Maybe they'll have to change the song. (laughs) For another friend, the song didn't come alive until she moved from her native Texas to New York City in the 70s. That first New Year's in town, Auld Lang Syne was a revelation to me, she said. I thought, this is beautiful, it may be written by a Broadway composer, <laughs> by Rodgers and Hammerstein. She saw people singing it on the street and at a party in a bar downtown, and there was this gorgeous moment when everyone seemed to know the words, and people looked teary. The song is a staple in movies, too. But when I asked people to think of the greatest Auld Lang Syne scene, every one of them had the same answer. Not when Harry meant Sally, not out of Africa, not for film buffs, Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush, The scene, the great scene that they all remembered in cinematic history is from It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) Remember? The scene comes at the end of the film. Friends surround George Bailey, recently rescued by an angel. Someone bumps against the Christmas tree and a bell ornament makes a sound. And George's daughter says, Teacher says, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. And George says, that's right, that's right. And looks up and winks boy, Clarence, he says, as the music swells. Tonight, I'll be at Susie and Joe's. I'll think of someone who won't be entering the new year with us. And I'll take a cup of kindness yet for them. For all the old acquaintances in my life, and for the readers for ten years now of this column, we mark an anniversary. Thank you for being in my life, and Happy New Year. And now the song. you probably never heard all the verses. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? For auld lang syne, my dear, for all of those moments that we've been through together, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for auld lang syne. We too have run about the slopes and picked the daisies fine, but we've wandered many a weary foot since auld lang syne. We too have paddled in the stream from morning sun till thine, but seas between us broad have roared since Auld Lang Syne. And there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give us a hand of thine. We'll take a good willy draft for Auld Lang Syne. For Auld Lang Syne, my dear, for Auld Lang Syne. We'll take a cup of kindness yet for Auld Lang Syne. I want to thank Lenny, And all of you for being my old acquaintance. That reminds me, because you show up, because we have relationship, because of the love that I know that you have for me and for each other, that there is a strange beauty here, that I'm intrinsically okay. Allow me to do the same for you. Allow each other to do the same for you. Let's find the strange beauty that eludes eludes so many of us and takes us into despair. And remember, it's all here. It's all right now. Jesus is doing everything that he can to show us. Father has already chosen us. All we have to do is choose back and let our old acquaintances remind us and show us who we really are in the love that we see for ourselves in their eyes. Let's pray. I guess, Father, thank you for setting everything up exactly as you did. Even though we don't understand it, even though we resent it at times, even though we buck against it, as we live longer, breathe longer, as we persevere longer, we can see the beauty in it. We can see how it takes us on exactly the journey we needed to take. So thank you for every bump every bruise and every joy and every embrace. Thank you for this last year and thank you for the one that's coming up. Thank you for your love and your devotion to us at every turn. Help us to see more and more that's exactly what this life is and exactly what your gift is. Never let us forget we can only love or do any of this because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Yeah!